Again, you guys may be seated. And for those of you that are <clears throat> utilizing our children's ministry, we run that through first grade, and you are more than welcome to take your children there now. For those of you whose children are staying in the service, just by way of reminder, they, again, are most welcome to stay in and learn the rhythms of worship along with the rest of us. We've been working through slowly just our confession of faith, which is uh, the 1689 London Confession of Faith, London Baptist Confession of Faith. And um, we are starting a new chapter this morning, chapter 8, paragraph 1, which relates to Christ as mediator. Christ as mediator. And the confession says this, It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them both, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, head and savior of his church, and heir of all things, and judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be a seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. So that relates to Christ as our mediator, as summarized by our confession of faith. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. So we've been kind of taking our time working through this particular gospel, and we are in the midst of looking at various parables of Christ Jesus. This cluster here we see, especially in chapter 4, and if you remember back to the parable of the soil, right, earlier in chapter 4, or you can, you know, go back later uh, this afternoon and, and, and read it, you'll see how the parable of the, the soils, the various soils that, again, we kind of noted represented the different heart conditions of man, but you'll note how that relates to the parable that we're looking at this morning, and even how it relates to the parable that we're going to look at next week, too. And in many ways, the, the parable of the soils, uh, it could be considered a, uh, a master parable, if you will, to, to these other parables that we, we see here, this cluster of parables in chapter 4. And I think that's why Jesus said that to the disciples earlier in chapter 4, if you remember back at verse 13, he said this to the disciples, Do you not understand this parable, how then will you understand all the parables, is what he said. So, so the parable of the soils, again, revealing the various heart conditions of man, we can think about it as a parent or a master parable to these other parables that we're looking at in this chapter, and it'll help us to just keep that in mind. Also, we, we want to keep in mind as we approach our text this morning, and, and particularly we're going to look at verses 26 to 29, we want to uh, remember what we noted last week as it relates to this, this, uh, this other thread that we see in these parables, which is the way in which the, 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 the Word of God, okay, which reveals, and I said it just like this last week, but the way in which the Word of God, which reveals to us, the mystery of God, right, is received by man, by us, and how it permeates throughout all of creation according to the Spirit of God. 
So we're, we want to note the way in which the Word of God, which reveals the mystery of God, right? again, is received by man and permeates throughout all creation according to the Spirit of God. And we're going to pay particular attention to the work of the Spirit this morning in our passage. So, so with that, just as a brief reminder as we approach our text, let me read verses 26 to 29, right? John Mark, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he documents this teaching of Christ. And he, speaking of Christ, said, quote, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by day and the seed should sprout and grow. He himself, and speaking of the man in the parable, does not know how. For the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head. After that, the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you again for your word. God, we thank you that it's living and active. We thank you that the Spirit of God uses it to change us, to conform us more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And God, we declare our dependence upon you for rightly dividing your word and for seeing it with eyes of faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Mark, John Mark, he's the only one that records for us uh, this particular parable that, that we're looking at this morning. Right? The, the parable, this parable, it's not the the shorthand of the parable, and perhaps this came to your mind as I was reading it, but it's not the shorthand of the parable of the wheat and the tares, right? We see in Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 34, right? And we see in that, in that particular parable, Christ identifies himself as the sower, right? And he speaks to this future judgment between those who belong to Christ and those who haven't been converted by the gospel of God. And so this isn't Mark's kind of shorthand, immediate version of the parable of the wheat and the tares, right? Even though there's similar language between the two. So this parable is is unique in, in Mark's gospel. And we see Jesus here capitalizing on farming in, in this sort of... Uh, uh, he, he, you know, he's, he's using it to teach something, and he's capitalizing on it in this agrarian culture, and he has been for this entire chapter. And this is the first time that we see this phrase, kingdom of God. Uh, it's, it's not the first time we see the phrase kingdom of God in Mark 4, right? We, we've also seen it in, in a previous Chapter, but it is the first time that we see it as it in, in the, the, the particular format here in Mark chapter 4, where it says the kingdom of God in verse 26, the kingdom of God is as if. It's the first time we see it in that particular format. Some of your translations may even say the kingdom of God is like, right? And what this tells us is that Jesus, he, he's, he's using this story, right, this simile, to, to teach the, the multitude. And, and because God has preserved his word by his spirit, he's using 
this story, this parable, to teach us something about the nature of the kingdom of God. A kingdom, mind you, that Jesus tells us in Mark 1 is at hand, meaning it's come near, right? We, if you remember back to Mark chapter 1 in verse 15, Jesus, he says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In other words, right, repentance and belief in, in the gospel of God is in light of the kingdom of God that Christ ushered in. And, and when we hear that phrase, kingdom of God, perhaps, you know, what comes to your mind, I know what can easily come to my mind is, is just this grand kind of visible breaking in of heaven to earth. And that was certainly what the Jewish leaders expected the kingdom of God to be like. It's one of the problems they had with accepting Christ as, as the Messiah. Yet Jesus, in using this phrase, the kingdom of God, right, or the kingdom of God is like, right, he likens the kingdom of God to a man-scattering seed. Right, to a man-scattering seed. And, and I can't help but to wonder... That if we really internalized the significance of that, right? If we'd be more optimistic, if we'd be more patient regarding God's plans for the nations. One commentator puts it this way a more boring or bland comparison could not be imagined. Now, the kingdom of God should be likened to something grand. And glorious to shimmering mountain peaks and crimson sunsets, the opulence of potentates, the lusty glory of a gladiator. But Jesus likens it to seeds. The paradox of the gospel, indeed the scandal of the incarnation, is disguised in such commonplaces. The God whom Jesus introduces will not be kept at celestial's arm length. Jesus does not tell us how high and lofty God is, but how very near and present he is, and how the routines of planting and harvesting are mundane clues to the nature and plan of God. Right, so, so the focus in this parable, and, and the focus next week when we look at the other parable, right, is, is how this kingdom right, that Christ has brought with him in this first advent is populated and how it's maturing. And as should be evident by the parable itself, there, there genuinely is mystery here. There's mystery here. Right? And, and from the parable, there's at least three things that I, I want us to note that, that we should consider further. And so if you're taking notes or kids, if, you're, if you have your worship guide as well, you can fill in the blank here. And the first thing is this, this parable teaches us that all of us sow the word of God. And all, all of us sow the word of God. There, there's in, in this parable a man that, that scatters seed. Right? And we know that the seed is the word because Jesus tell, tells us as much in, in his interpretation of the master parable in chapter 4, verse 14. Yet the seed here in, our particular, in this other parable is like, Jesus said it, he likens it to the kingdom of God. Now, 
what can this mean except that the word of God expands the kingdom of God that Christ brought in his first advent, right? The, the two go hand in hand, right? The word of God and the kingdom of God, they can't be separated from one another. That's not, that's not how it works. And here we have a man, right? Not, not anyone in particular, except that he possesses the word, which means that he possesses Christ, right? And, and this man is instrumental in the expansion of God's kingdom, even though, according to this parable, quote, he knows not how. He knows not how he's instrumental, really. And this man could be a pastor, perhaps, but I think we should take a broader interpretation of this parable, one that includes any type of Christian, right? Our lives as Christians is one that truly plays a role in expanding and maturing God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, right? It's the prayer that we're taught to pray by Jesus himself, Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. But our, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who ordained the salvation of his people before the foundation of the world is the same God that's ordained the means by which he saves the means by which he reconciles his people. Right? That's why we have a commission, a great commission. Matthew chapter 28, this mandate that was given by Christ who's ascended, who says he has all authority in heaven and on earth. Right? This commission to make disciples. And this parable is helpful as we think through this because it helps to define our role as Christians a bit more clearly. But according to this parable, our role is sowing seed. Sowing seed, scattering seed. Which means, right, we could interpret that as prayerfully exalting Christ, right, to, to those that God sovereignly places in our lives. Right, prayerfully exalting Christ to those that God sovereignly places in our lives. Think for a moment of just the various relationships in your life. Right? Your family, even, even your extended family, right? your friends, those people that get on your nerves, right? your neighbors, right? the, the actual people in your neighborhood. Right? You're called by the risen authoritative Christ to scatter seed in those fields, if we think about them as fields, those fields that he sovereignly placed you in, right? And I don't mean that you're constantly setting folks down and you're explaining the gospel to them, right? though perhaps that's not the ditch I would guess that most of us fall in, right? The ditch that most of us fall in is probably not sharing the gospel when we should be sharing the gospel, right? So I'm not so much worried about that ditch, but what I think captures just these sovereign fields here, right? And I think this parable helps us see is just having this, this lifestyle right, of living before the face of God, right? living before the face of God, both our words and our actions having this sowing effect, this scattering effect in the places that the Lord takes us and in the lives of 
the various people God puts in our paths, right? Have you ever thought that the people that you know, the people that you maybe meet, there's some people that are in our lives for the long term. There's some people that we have just a little while with, right? A short, a short time with. But have you thought that perhaps those are people that God is entrusting to you to scatter seed, right? to sow the word, right? Do you look at your relationships? Do you look at your acquaintances in that particular way? Now, note as we're looking for our role to be defined according to this parable, it is limited to the scattering of, of seed, which should be humbling to us. It's limited to the role of scattering seed, right? And, and I think we go wrong here, oftentimes go wrong here, because we're discontent with being seed scatterers. Right? But that's how we engage those that the Lord's bringing into our lives. We're like farmers seeking to plant seeds and and praying that those seeds will bear fruit, right? The way this parable is being used by Christ is in such a way as to demonstrate that we can't control the soil, right? That we have no control. And again, think of the agrarian culture, right? We can't determine the type of soil we scatter the seed on, right? We can't control how the soil receives the seed, right? That's outside of our jurisdiction, Right, Paul sought to teach the church of Corinth this, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 to 7, right, as there's this, I like this teacher better, I like that teacher better, right? Paul says, who then is Paul? Who's Apollos? Paul's essentially saying, who cares? Right, who cares? But ministers, he says, Who's, who then is Paul? Who then is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one. I planted Apollos watered, but God gave the increase, right? God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, Paul says, nor he who waters is anything, but God who gives the increase, right? In other words, you and I can't save people, right? We can't save people. You and I can't manipulate people into the kingdom of God. We can't be persuasive enough with our various giftings that we may have, right? We haven't been authorized by Christ to do anything other than farm the field that God's placed us in. And when we get this wrong and we begin to behave even unwittingly in such a way that is forgetful of our role of being a seed scatterer, then we aren't truly exalting Christ to other people. The sinister reality is that we're exalting ourselves to other people. Right? We're behaving in such a way as if we're their savior. And that's not good. Right? That, that's actually bad news, not good news, because you and I make for very lousy saviors, don't we? But in contrast to us being saviors, Christ is a good savior. He's a good shepherd, right? He's one that, that never fails. He's one that's never inattentive. He's one that never has off hours, if you will, right? And Christ as Savior truly leads to reconciliation. It's the only way. It's the only path that leads to reconciliation. It's the only path that leads to peace with God, right? So 
it's good that the salvation and the maturity of others is God's work and not our work, right? That's a good thing. The salvation of God's people does not depend upon you and I changing hearts, changing the soil of individuals. Rather, we sow the word of God. We sow the word of God. So that's the first thing, right? And that's a big enough job to keep us busy forever, isn't it? The second related thing we should see, we're already hitting on it a little bit, the parable teaches us that the Spirit sovereignly works in the lives of people to produce fruit. Right? The Spirit sovereignly works in the lives of people to produce fruit. Right? It, it would not be inappropriate, I think, to say that the Spirit secretly works. Right? The Spirit mysteriously works works. Look again at the parable, verses 26 and 27. And he said, Jesus, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. So again, there's the role of all believers, okay, the man, and should sleep. The man sleeps, right, by night, rise by day, and the seed should sprout and grow. He himself, the man, does not know how. He doesn't know. One theologian says, apart from sowing, The only human activity in this parable is waiting in faith, confident of a harvest to come. The the only human activity in this parable, aside from sowing, is waiting in faith, confident of a harvest to come. This observation, it, it harmonizes well I think with Scripture elsewhere. James chapter 5, verses 7 to 8. James commends us. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So as the farmer in agrarian culture depended on the right soil and waited for the heavens to open up and send forth rain, so we have to wait on the Holy Spirit of God to produce fruit according to God's own timetable. We can't accelerate or delay the Spirit's work in the lives of individuals. John chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who's born of the what? Spirit. It's born of the Spirit. There is this mystery that we see in this passage. A man should honestly should be eager to confess the mysterious secret working of the Spirit and thank God that He would take sinners like us and give us a new heart, right? And cause us to walk in repentance and faith. That's a glorious reality. A glorious reality. Instead of obsessing about just the mysterious nature of it, as we're reading through it this morning. And this is the type of news, beautiful news, that can just wash over us and produce in us patience, produce in us contentment and rest in our triune God. 
who invites us into what he's doing in the nations, but he doesn't need us. How often do we stress and worry about the lack of fruit that we see in our lives? How often do we stress and worry about the lack of fruit we see in our church? How often do we stress and worry about the lack of fruit that we see in our nation and in our world? Jesus be wrong to conclude that he's advocating for worldliness, right? He's not advocating that there exists a Christian that will not bear fruit. Instead, though, the emphasis here is on the Spirit producing the fruit, the Spirit producing the true maturity, not us manufacturing maturity. Right? Not us manufacturing our own righteousness. Right? We have, if you're familiar with your Bibles, and we've seen this already in our journey through Mark, we have a cautionary tale in the lives of the Pharisees, don't we? Of what it looks like when man seeks to manufacture his own maturity or his own righteousness. Right? The Pharisees demonstrate the difference between what it looks like when the Spirit of God produces fruit versus man seeking to create some sort of counterfeit fruit, right? Man seeking to take matters that belong to God into his own hands, all that produces is a a rotten fruit, not true Spirit-wrought fruit. When pastor theologian says, Jesus... He likens the kingdom of God to a process of growth. A seed is it's not spectacular, nor does it its laborious growth attract attention, which is what you see in the Pharisees, right? Constant attention seeking. Look at how mature I am. Look at how better I am than other people. Pastor goes on, night and day a farmer waits for seeds. He sleeps and he gets up. Life goes on as it always has, but simultaneously and independent of the farmer, another process is at work. Slowly, imperceptibly, the seed sprouts and it grows. It sprouts and it grows. This leads us to the last thing we should see this morning. This parable teaches us that God is growing us toward that day in which we'll be finally conformed into the image of Jesus. That the Lord is growing us toward that day in which we'll be finally conformed to the image of Jesus. So this parable, if you're familiar with the theological word, has eschatological implications, right? It's got the end in view here, right? First, we see this, this process, right? A process we know experientially, right, as Christians to be grueling, and painful, right? This process of spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. And the way that Christ teaches about this is through the different stages of a crop, right? Look at verse 28. The earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, after that the full grain in the head, right? So this process of, of growth, again, that the the Holy Spirit of God mysteriously blossoms in our lives. Right? But this process is of sanctification that's described as first the blade, the head, then the full grain of head. 
is is one that um, we in fact it, it, that is in fact moving us toward a particular end. Right? It's it's taking us somewhere. The Spirit of God living in our lives is moving us, conforming us. Right? It's not improper even to think of what we're doing here this morning as we gather each and every Lord's Day as this dress rehearsal for what we'll be doing for all eternity. Right? As, as we move along in a redemptive history. But we're moving. It's a path here. A marker of maturity. And we're moving toward being truly mature, right? That, that we see in this parable is signified by the ripening of the grain. Verse 29, when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. When the grain ripens, in other words, when maturity through this process that we're in presently Right, when it finally concludes, when it finally hits its peak ripeness, what happens according to this parable? And I think what Jesus is showing us again is he's teaching us about the consummation. He's teaching us about the second advent, right? That, that glorious day in God's timing when Christ returns. And, and who in this passage is the harvester? Right? If there's harvesting, it's going to happen. Who is the harvester but Christ Jesus? And on that day, that day again that, that God's ushering us all toward, we'll, we'll finally see God's plan. We'll finally see it, right? This plan that this side of eternity, perhaps we've been so impatient with, right? This plan that this side of eternity often baffles us as we look at the fallenness of creation, right? sin and disease and death, right? This plan that's often met with us by so many questions, right? As if we stand in the seat of the judge of the cosmos. But this plan that if we're honest, we say to ourselves, you know, I just wouldn't do it that way. aside from our arrogance being put away on the last day, there's going to come this sort of cosmic hindsight, if you will, and this cosmic humility and this gratefulness that will come from no longer having just these eyes of faith that we see in Scripture, but that our, that our faith will really become sight. We're moving toward that. And we'll come and we'll agree with God's plan and his process for building his kingdom and his kingdom spreading and, and, and how he's taken all the bad stuff and he's not wasted any of it, but he's used it to, again, not just populate the kingdom of God, but it, he's used all of this bad stuff, all of these hardships to mature his kingdom, to prepare us to build you and me for eternity. And one day our faith will become sight and we'll see that and we'll agree with the rightness of it. There'll be no debate about it, right? And we'll see that how, how he's used all of this bad stuff for good, how he's flipped it upside down, right? And 
we'll see how he's been able to do that true to his own good nature, his good character. And on that day, we'll be able to sing a song like what we just sang this morning, whatever my God ordains is right, right? And, and we'll finally be able to sing it without any sort of inner conflicts. Because maybe this morning you were singing it and you're like, I, yes, this is true, but emotively, I don't feel this right now because of all of my suffering, all of my sorrow, everything that I've gone through. There's a day coming where that conflict will finally be put away. The time when we're fully ripened, when we reach maturity, right? We'll sing it without sorrow. We'll sing it without pride. We'll sing it without death. We'll sing it without any sort of bitterness that's perhaps grown and, and taken root in our lives due to the experiences that we have. And we'll see that how our story, every bit of it, has been used to create what is beautiful and glorious out of those things that the curse has touched. Our good God doesn't waste a single suffering. We're told of this in Isaiah, but one day, again, we'll know this experientially. Isaiah 61, 3, we'll see this prophecy. To console those who mourn in Zion, in the, in the, the church, to give them beauty for ashes. Like this great exchange, isn't it? The oil of joy for mourning. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified, the glorifying of God. It's inseparably connected to us receiving consolation and beauty and the oil of joy and the garment of praise. That's what we'll see clearly in that, that great day of harvest, right? All of this evil and this fallenness taken and, and flipped on its head. Right now we see through a dim mirror, but not always. Amen? In closing, I'm going to read you a quote I found encouraging just as it relates to, to this point. And then I'm going to close with the words of the Apostle Paul. And then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. But the quote first says, One day, perhaps when we look back from God's throne on the last day, we shall say with amazement and surprise, if I had ever dreamed when I stood at the graves of my loved ones and everything seemed to be ended, if I had ever dreamed when I saw the specter of atomic war creeping upon us, if I had ever dreamed when I faced the meaningless fate of an endless imprisonment or a malignant disease, if I had ever dreamed that God was only carrying out his design and plan through all these woes, that in the midst of my cares and troubles and despair, his harvest was ripening, and that everything was pressing on toward his last kingly day. If I had known this, I would have been more calm and confident. Yes, then I would have been more cheerful and far more tranquil and composed. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among, among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you 
for allowing us to gather here this morning and worship you, our triune God, in spirit and in truth. God, and help us to be encouraged, convicted, comforted, God, by what Christ has taught us through this parable, the growing seed, and produce in us just a quiet confidence, trust, Jesus alone for all things as we work according to and by your spirit. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.